Well, I think everybody virtually on earth loves a good story of perseverance. Uh, I'm sure you can think of someone in your life who has persevered or somebody throughout history who has persevered that has been inspiring to you. It's, it is a, it, it's just an amazing thing to be able to watch people conquer fears or complete a challenge that seemed very difficult or impossible for them or just to keep pressing forward in the face of adversity. We all love that. We, I think human beings are hardwired in a lot of ways to love that. Um, that's why the greatest books we read or the greatest movies that we watch never end with the hero going, oh, well, it got a little hard. I'm just going to go home now. Right? It never happens. Right? They, they either complete the mission uh, or they go out in a blaze of glory. And either way, it's like amazing. Right? We're, we're happy to see those stories. That's why uh, movies are, are made with those kinds of endings where the hero typically wins or if they don't win, they're going out uh, just really hard, right? And amazing. Um, but perseverance is one of those things that, that I think we, we as Christians need to consider for our own lives and what the Bible calls us to as we walk this life through this sinful world uh, with Jesus. And perseverance, I think, is probably the, the most important thing we can embrace as believers, uh, it's one of the reasons why we, we call the greatest generation the greatest generation, right? The ge- greatest generation were a group of people born roughly between 1901 and 1921. So there's not very many of them left anymore. Um, there, obviously, there's some dates on either side of those that, that would fall into that. You know, generations don't, aren't exactly clean cut all the time, but uh, there's not very many of these people left. But the reason we can look back over 100 years and go, those people collectively as a group of people on this, in this country, particularly in the Western world, make up the greatest generation is because they kept going, right, in the face of incredible odds and difficulties. This was the generation that lived through the Great Depression. This was the generation that grew up uh, to fight in World War II. And, and we think about all those people and we go, that, that generation is like we call them the greatest for a reason. And I don't know that we, uh, at least it's hard to, it's hard to see any, any generation uh, topping that, although uh, hopefully we will, right? And I know that there are, uh, Crystal just watched a, a commercial yesterday about National Guard saying that Gen Z could be the next greatest generation. And I'm like, good luck with that. Um, but, but maybe they'll surprise us all, right? I mean, who knows? Uh, and I hope they do, actually. It would be amazing if they did. Um, but, but I think that as, as Christians, uh, we, we need to find a way to, to persevere, right? And, and the Bible gives us that way. And, and uh, I think that's one of the things that we're seeing so clearly in Nehemiah 6 and 7, we're seeing perseverance in the face of difficulty and great odds. And so the story of Nehemiah and Ezra are really a story of people persevering through difficulty. That's fundamentally what it is. Um, it's, a, it's a story recording some of the difficult times that the Israelites and the leaders of Israel had as they came back from exile from 70 years out of their land to reestablish the city of Jerusalem. And in Ezra, it records primarily them rebuilding the temple. It's kind of the centerpiece of their worship. And then 
Nehemiah complete, comes in to complete the rest of the, the work to defend the city of Jerusalem by building the walls around it. And so we're seeing these, these men and these women uh, persevere and carry on and do, do what's necessary to, to finish the task. And we're, we're just seeing more of that today. Uh, Nehemiah is going to continue to face an uphill battle and, and definitely opposition from people. So let's look at uh, verse 1 through 14. I'm going to read this whole section. It's most of chapter 6. Um, I want to read it all, get it in front of us, and then we can back up and talk about what we're seeing here. So it says this, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, which is kind of an important part of you know, a, a wall, I think. Um, it says, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Anno, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am, uh, I am doing a great work and cannot come down why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the, in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem also says it, that you... And the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become the king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you, have say, as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Pause for one second while I'll take a drink here. My mouth is a little dry here. Okay. For they all wanted to, verse 9, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of uh, Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nobadiah, Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Okay, a lot there. So 
here's what's happening. Just big picture. This is what's happening at this point in the story. God's enemies in this passage are using a variety of tactics. I've identified at least three, maybe you could argue four, uh, but at least three uh, to try to get Nehemiah to stop the work of building the wall, which is his whole mission and the whole purpose of him being in Jerusalem. And I think that what's important to recognize, and we're going to talk about each of the three things that we're seeing here, the, the tactics that are used, but I think before we get into them specifically, these are really the same playbook that God's enemies always use uh, and that Satan himself will use against Christians to try and frustrate or stop the work of Christ. But here's what we need to recognize. I think it's important. Uh, Satan may try to do those things, but it's an exercise in futility for him because Christ's already defeated him. He's, he's really a toothless lion at this point. He doesn't have the ability to actually cause harm ultimately. He can be a nuisance, but he can't do anything ultimately. And C.S. Lewis really it was, is helpful on this point in, in his book, The Screwtape Letters. It's a, it's a le- book about, uh, it's written from kind of the fictional perspective of one demon writing to another demon to try to like, coach him and mentor him to be a better demon. That's kind of an interesting take on things. But in that, even the the character Screwtape um, in that that book basically goes, once the the patient, as as he's referred to in the the book, once their patient becomes a Christian, he's kind of like, well, we don't have a whole lot we can do here other than just bother him. You know, which is true, right? Because the, the Bible tells us that Satan's been defeated. Colossians 2.15 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's not human rulers and authorities. That's spiritual rulers and authorities. And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Some, some manuscripts say in the cross. And so if you disarm your enemies and you put them to open public shame, and you triumph over them, that means they've lost, right? There's no like if, ands, or buts about this. They've lost the war. That is, and that is not a future reality. That is a present reality. Paul uses the past tense. God disarmed in the past this, this, uh, these rulers and authorities by triumphing over them in Jesus at the cross of Christ. And so we know that Satan has lost. That doesn't make him any less annoying though. And so what I, what I want to recognize is that these tactics that we're going to see in this passage is the playbook. And that's what's interesting. I was just talking to some guys this, this past week or a couple weeks ago. And it's amazing that you just don't see a lot of creativity out of uh, out of Satan. He just kind of keeps doing the same thing over and over again, thinking that he's going he's gonna to win. And it's like, well, you must be stupid. I, I don't know what else to make of this. He's not creative, at least, if, if nothing else. So he uses these tactics. The enemies of God in, in the Old Testament are using these tactics. I think you'll identify these tactics as well as we walk through them. So let's go back to the passage. Let's look at the first tactic. It's in verse 1 through 4. Um, so I'll just summarize it because I know I just read those verses. And here's what's happening in verse 1 to 4. 
um, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, these three guys who kind of are key players in uh, representing the enemies of, of God's people, they continuously on five occasions in those four verses or so, five occasions send messengers to Nehemiah trying to get him down from the wall. He just keep coming back and they keep pestering and they keep bothering and they keep distracting. And that's really what this is. It is, the tactic is distraction. They're trying to get Nehemiah to stop working by continuously being an obnoxious presence in his life. And, and obviously their hope would be that he would actually relent and come down and then they could stop the work altogether to do harm to him. But he doesn't fall for it, but they're trying. They're just trying to pester him. That's why they keep sending, they don't take no for an answer, right? They just keep sending messengers to bother him. And maybe you found yourself in a spot like that at some point where you're in the middle of a project or you're working on uh, a book or you're reading through a book or you're trying to do your devotional time and your phone keeps buzzing or your kids keep buzzing or whatever other things keep buzzing and everything's frustrating and distracting and keeping you from doing what, what you want to do. We all know how, how frustrating that is. That's one of the great things about our phones, which we can't do to our kids. We can turn our phones off. We can't always turn our kids off. And, um, but, but, I, but you understand this frustration and this distraction. And I think that's one of the crucial things that we're seeing in our day is that if we can be distracted people, then we're not going to be able to dive deeply into God's word or into his will or into his, his purposes for us. So distraction is a key thing here, and we're seeing it in this text. There's a second way, though, when the, when the distraction doesn't work to get Nehemiah down, they do something else. This time, they send a fifth letter, and the fifth letter is read for us, and it's pretty interesting. The letter says, essentially, Nehemiah, I know what you're doing. You're building these walls so that you and the Israelites with you will rebel against King Artaxerxes, who's the king at this current moment. You're going to rebel against him, and you are going to set yourself up as king. Now, they say this, um, and what, I think what they're doing here, what Sanballat is doing here, is he's trying to create a wedge. He's trying to make a divide. He's using division to bring about um, uh, some sort of diversion and, and ultimately stop the work. He's trying to create a wedge between Nehemiah and the people of Israel because think about this in the context, right? You have King Artaxerxes who has given them permission to be doing what they're doing, but if he gets wind that, oh, actually all of this is a ruse to just be in rebellion against him and Nehemiah is going to become a king, then what do you think is going to happen? Artaxerxes is going to send his armies and destroy them because they're a very small group of people. They'll be very easy to kill. They're not, they're not a tough fighting force. Uh, it's a very small group of refugees who have come back to their, their land. And so I think what uh, Sanballat's trying to do is he's cre- trying to create a division between the people and their leaders so that there's this rift that stops the work on the wall. They're, div- they're, causing, they're trying to cause division through slandering Nehemiah's intentions 
and accusing him of trying to set himself up as a king. And that's obviously not what he's doing. He says so much. He actually tells them that in verse 8, he sends a letter to them saying, no such thing as you have said has been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. But he says that the reason that they are inventing these things out of their own mind is to frighten them and then stop the work. So you have distraction and you have division through creating this false narrative, this story about Nehemiah's intentions, which are not true. But Nehemiah just sort of brushes them off. He says, oh, you guys are crazy. You're just making it up. It's all, it's all make-believe. So it doesn't work. So that leads to tactic number three in this text. And I think, there's, I think this one could be potentially split into two. It could be three or four, but I'll, I'll give you both and you can run with it as you want. Um, verse 10 through 14 gets really interesting because up to this point, you have the three guys, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, who are just sort of causing all the problems. But now in verse 10, we meet another guy, a guy named Shemaiah, who is the son of Deliah, who is the son of Mehetibel. And he apparently is some sort of prophet. Uh, don't exactly know what his role is or why he is in the position he's in. We're not given a lot of detail, but he's, uh, he's housebound. He is, he's a shut-in. He's, he must have either a, a disability that keeps him inside or maybe he's advanced in age. But either way, he's stuck in his home. He's confined to his house, it says in verse 10. But this guy calls Nehemiah and tells him, hey, uh, you need to meet me in the temple, inside the temple. Now, that in and of itself is bizarre because you're not allowed to go inside the temple unless you're the high priest once a year. So he's telling, he's telling Nehemiah to do something <clears throat> sinful, for one, and uh, he, he tells him to go in and shut the doors and meet him in there because someone is trying to kill you, he says. There's a plot to murder you, Nehemiah. You need to go into the temple for safety. I'll meet you in there. Nehemiah, for his part, understands that this is not uh, from God. This prophet is not speaking on God's part probably because of the contradiction. God's not going to contradict himself. God's not going to say in one breath, don't go into the inner temple and then say, go into the inner temple. That's not how God, he's not going to, uh, he's not going to contradict himself in that way, right? And so Nehemiah is obviously a smart guy and he's going, this doesn't add up. There's something weird here. And he does some digging and he eventually figures out, don't know how he figures it out, but he finds out that this, prophet Shemaiah was, was paid off by Tobiah and Geshem and, and uh, Sanballat in order to lie and deceive and uh, do create this ruse. So he's been paid uh, to do this. But what's the tactic under this? The tactic is, uh, on one hand, I think the tactic is discouragement. It's discouragement because how would you feel if you were told by someone, someone's out to kill you? <laughs> you'd be discouraged. That'd be a bummer of a day, right? Uh, you'd be like, oh, this isn't a good day. Someone's trying to kill me. Oh, oh boy. Um, 
right? So I'm, nobody wants to hear that news. In fact, you, you can read from in 1 Kings, we, we looked at this on New Year's Day, I think it was, and looked at Elijah and how he was given a death threat by Queen Jezebel and he just melted down and lost it. Um, and Nehemiah doesn't respond in that same way. Um, obviously, I'm not saying Nehemiah is better than Elijah. I'm just saying that their situations are different. But, but the idea of somebody plotting to kill you is a discouragement, of course, obviously. You can also say that this is a, a way to discredit him. The, the goal was to discredit Nehemiah by making him go into the temple and accusing him of, of going in there and doing that sinfully. Therefore, you can discredit him to give him, as he says in verse 13, to give me a bad name in order to taunt me. So there's a couple things here, but let's lean into the discouragement piece because I think that that's predominantly what we experience from Satan and his, and his tactics against us. So you have distraction. On one hand, you've got division. You have discouragement. And this is the playbook, you guys. Like this is not, once you know the playbook, we can start to see it. When, when we're distracted, like think about when am I being distracted the most? Is it when I'm actually trying to draw near to the Lord? Probably, right? Is, doesn't that seem to be when most of the things are kind of coming down? Or division? When, when have we not seen the church and Christians get all up in arms about different things that just don't matter. It happens all the time. And discouragement, right? Like we, we see Satan try to get to our hearts and make us discouraged. He tries to distract us with all kinds of temptations and shiny toys. The world we live in is extremely distracting in and of itself. I think... Um, I think some ways, in some ways we need to rediscover again the ancient Christian practices of silence and solitude. When was the last time we were ever alone? When was Because like, we're never alone. We've got these stupid things in our pockets, right? We're never alone. When was the last time we actually sought time alone with God? When was the last time? And I'm speaking for myself here. I'm just as, I'm in the same boat you are. We all live in the same world. Like we are distracted people. And maybe you found a great rhythm in your life and God bless you if you have, but probably most of us feel like something's off because we're, we're losing what was more natural in other times when we were less connected. We actually had times that we could pull away and now we have to just be more intentional. It's still possible. It just takes more forethought and, and commitment. And I'm not saying we need to seek solitude or silence forever. We're not called to monasteries in that way. But for seasons or for moments, we do need this, to hear intentionally from the Lord. Back in the day when I was young, and, and uh, this has kind of fallen out of fashion in some ways, I think to our detriment, but the idea of a quiet time <laughs> Sounds so quaint now, right? Because it's like, oh, look, think about the days when we could have been quiet. Well, that never happens. But I think we need to rediscover these things as a way to combat these 
these tactics that we're in, you know, getting all the time from distraction. Secondly, we see division in, in the church and in our lives. And God has the church on a common mission. We're not all going to approach it the exact same way because there, there needs to be different styles and different methods. Uh, but we should all be pursuing the gospel of grace being preached. That's the mission. Preach the gospel of grace. Bring that into the world. And, and to stop that effort, division is the key way. If he can get us fighting each other over truly stupid things like politics, like it is, it is, like you all know that in your heart of hearts, you do. Um, and I don't mean to offend you if I, if I call it stupid, but I'm not going to worry too much about that. Um, politics is a bad reason to divide with anybody. We have a king we Christians are monarchists. We have a king and we're in his kingdom. And I'm not saying you shouldn't vote or do the blah, blah, blahs, but that's not a dividing point for us. Shouldn't be. But that's, I think, become one of the big things in our, at least in our day right now. It's not a new problem. People in the New Testament times when Paul was writing were dividing over the food choices they were making. Some people wanted to eat vegetables exclusively and others wanted to eat meat. And I'm full on the meat team, okay? But, but listen, it's like, is that, but Paul's point in, in the book of Romans is don't divide over that issue. That's insane. How much more would he say that to us on our issues? So we, we, we're seeing division creeping in left and right. What we need to do is link arms and be in it together. And then thirdly, we see discouragement, right? This is where, where, where the tactic is to make us doubt our faith itself or the goodness of God or God's ability to provide or even doubt God himself. And, and if, if we can be just crushed under the weight of paralyzing doubt and fear, then we're going to be falling to pieces and not very helpful on the mission. So what we need to do is keep bringing the truth back into our lives, which gets us back to time in the word of God, time with Christians, so that we don't find ourselves discouraged. These all feed into each other. We need to lean on the grace of God in these things so that the schemes are endurable. That's the point. It's like we're not going to escape these tactics, but we have to endure under the weight of them. Where we'd be living in a fairy tale fantasy land if we thought we could just get away from these things. We can't, but we can endure and power through as we lean on grace. So that's the first uh, 14 verses. Now, chapter, the last ha uh, part of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, let's look at this. And then the rest of chapter 7 is literally just a list of names and numbers. So I will spare you from that today. Not that that's not important, but, you know, you guys can read, read that phone book on, on your own if you'd like to. And, um, but I'll give you the point of it. There is a point in it. But let's look at verse 15 of chapter 6 and get down to verse 4 of chapter 7. It says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elu, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, 
all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Meaning they didn't think very highly of themselves anymore. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Erah, and his son Jehoanan had taken the daughter of Meshuliam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. So Nehemiah is talking about the reality that the wall's finished, but also that there's a lot of people in Judah that are uh, siding with Tobiah, which is an interesting thing here. But it says, verse, verse one of seven says, now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah, um, Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let, none, uh, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut the, and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some, of the guard posts, uh, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. He says, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Okay, so he's telling us that the wall is completed, but the work still goes on because Jerusalem is a big city for that, for that time and that period of time. It was a very big city, but it was mostly empty. No one was really living in it. So what's the point of a city with a wall around it if no one's living in it? All right, so that's where the rest of chapter seven comes in. And it's a list of the names of the people who had returned in the first and second waves and the list of names that will return to come and fill this city up. So basically what we're seeing in these verses as we conclude these chapters is that Nehemiah doesn't fall for the traps that were set for him. He was a laser-focused leader. He had his eye on the mission of God. He, he kept working. He didn't lose sight of it when things got difficult. He didn't fall under persecutions. And the rest of chapter 7 records a long, long genealogy, like really long, um, one of the longest in the Bible. And it's, it's there to show us that there is a people that God has, has in store for this city. Okay, so what, what do we do with this? Obviously, we've been talking about the devices that, that Satan employs against us, but how do we get back to this issue of endurance? How do we endure the hardships? What we're seeing in this passage is an example of a man who did so. But I think it's not helpful for us to try to just look at Nehemiah and go, well, look at what he did. Let me just do what he did. He made his own mistakes. He was a sinful man like all of us. And he, he was not a perfect person. So it's not ultimately helpful to just look at Nehemiah. We need to actually remember that Nehemiah is a shadow of what would ultimately come through Jesus, who is the ultimate pinnacle of what it means to persevere. Jesus persevered 
all the way to the cross for us. Hebrews chapter 12, one to four tells us this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's chapter 11, those witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Think about that. The joy set before him, therefore he endured the cross. This is, this is an amazing, like mind-blowing thing because the cross is not a joyful moment, right? but it was the joy that would be, be brought out from his death on the cross that allowed him to endure. He despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, we're told, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus Christ endured all the way to the cross so that we can endure. We endure by looking to Jesus. We endure by considering him who endured for us. We endure, we run our race. The picture that Hebrews is painting from chapter 11 through chapter 12 is like a, a, a passing a baton, right? You've got all these cloud of witnesses that came before us. And that list is obviously even incomplete from our standpoint, right? Because we are living 2,000 years later even. We have even more people that we can look to. And just seeing from generation to generation, the baton of endurance is getting passed on. And we get to run this race, but not in our own strength, not on our own power, but by looking to Jesus, who is the very center of this cloud of witnesses, who ultimately endured. Because if you read the, the chapter 11, just prior to the verses I read, you'll, you'll read about a lot of people who did well in some regard and did terribly in others. Like Samson is mentioned in that list. Jephthah, who sacrificed his daughter, is on that list. It's, it's quite a crazy list, actually. Because you're thinking, that guy made the list? <laughs> so it gives us hope. Because if they can make the list, then... We can too, by faith, right? It's not about all of our accomplishments. It's about faith in Jesus. That's what kept them enduring. That's what will keep us enduring. So in the face of all these things, these distractions, these discouragements, these divisions, in the face of all of these tactics, we need to keep looking to Jesus by faith as the one who persevered and we need to find our strength in him I also think it's important for us to remember Matthew 16, 18, which is a verse that Jesus speaks to his disciples. And he says in that verse, he tells us that, the, that he is going to build his church. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
Notice what he says. He does not say the gates of the church will prevail. Gates are defensive mechanisms. They keep things out, right? Gates are not offensive weapons. So whose gates is he talking about? He says the gates of hell will not prevail against what? The church that Jesus is building. In other words, Jesus is building a church that is going to win. It is going to bring the gospel of grace into the very places where hell has impacted it the most and it is going to change hearts and transform people by the power of the gospel. And we get to be a part of that church. We belong to it through faith in Christ. And so we have confidence that we are not running in vain. That's what I'm trying to point you to. We are not running this race for nothing. We are running this race because we are part of the church that Jesus is advancing forward through the very gates of hell. And those gates will not stand against us. I think a lot of us have lost sight of that. I know I I often do. We can be anxious and afraid. We can be desiring rather than engaging the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would rather build our own walls to keep everything out from touching us. But what we're called to is to charge forward through grace, by God's power, on the mission of Jesus, to run the race with endurance. So that's how we ultimately deal with our discouragements and our sufferings. We keep our eyes on Jesus and we keep moving forward with him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for the promise that we are given in this passage in Hebrews that you have endured the race all the way to the cross so that our sins would be forgiven, so that we would have an absolute right relationship with you that is perfectly built on your righteousness. God, that you, I pray, would help us to endure. We are living in a time of anxiety and fear and doubt and discouragement. We are divided and distracted people. We confess all these things to you, but we know, God, that you will carry us through this race and keep us moving. We pray you would give us strength in the process by your grace and by your power. Thank you, Lord, for building a church that will not lose in the end. Help us to stay focused on that. Help us to, like Nehemiah, stay laser-focused on the mission and to help us keep going. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.